If you have a Bible with you, uh, you may go to the, uh, well, to the 21st chapter of Ezekiel and in that neighborhood. We'll be continuing our sermon series in Ezekiel uh, called Hope for Exiles. Um, In this morning's text, you're going to get some familiar flavors. Uh, It is also the beginning of a parable involving a, um, a kind of metaphor picture involving the sword of the Lord. And that's going to go on for the rest of chapter 21. Um, and so we're going to look at the first part of that today. Interestingly enough, in, uh, this is a, a, a rare uh, kind of difference in numbering between the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Hebrew uh, Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible. And that is that in verse 45 of chapter 20, which is where we're going to start this morning. In the Hebrew Bible, that is actually verse 1, start of chapter 21. The more that I looked into that, the more I thought it made sense. And so we are going to start at verse 45. Um, again, the, in the Hebrew Bible, that's the start of 21. Uh, and then follow that through to uh, verse 7. All right? So... And if you're asking why, why, you know, why the difference, I don't know. I've, I've looked and I haven't found a good answer yet. But all I've got to tell you is that it's different. You might notice a footnote if you're reading from the ESV. It indicates that uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 1 in our English is actually 21, verse 6. So anyway, with that, we'll begin at verse 45 of chapter 20. And the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, right? son of Adam, set your face toward the southland. Preach against the south and prophesy against the forest land in the Negev. Say to the forest of the Negev, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree in you and every dry tree. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from south to north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Then I said, ah, Lord God. They are saying of me, is he not a maker of parables? The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel. Say to the land of Israel, thus says Yahweh, behold, I am against you. will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut off from you both righteous and wicked because I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. Therefore, my sword will be drawn from its sheath Against all flesh from south to north, and all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. I have drawn my sword from its sheath, it shall not be sheathed again. As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan before their eyes. And when they say to you, why do you groan? You shall say, because of the news that is coming. Every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming, and it will be fulfilled, declares the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord, and so again we say, thanks be to God. As I said, this starts off a kind of parable of the sword, once we get to English chapter 21, and uh, we're going to follow that parable for a couple of weeks. Now, you know in the book of Ezekiel, the basic point that we've been coming back to again and again and again is God is telling His people through Ezekiel the judgment that is coming for their sin, idolatry, what we might call, and what has been called in the text, spiritual adultery, rejection of the Lord, rejection of His ways, but still presumptively thinking 
that all will be well with us and we are God's special little people so we can behave however we like and we're going to be protected. Here's Ezekiel saying, no, you won't and has been for some time and they are still not hearing him. Now, at this point in Israel's history, the people of God are mainly uh, defined using that image of an unfaithful wife. Israel's gone from being children of God to being traitors to God. They've embraced idolatry, trusted in worldly power, rejected God's word, rejected God's commandment, and at the same time lived under the expectation that their status as God's nation would protect them. It reminds me a bit of uh, Romans chapter 2 when Paul asked the Roman Christians, if you live in idolatry, do you think that you're going to escape judgment? And then he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so you see, for Israel, God's patience over the generations had not led them to repentance. It had led them to sinful indulgence. And as you have have known and seen and heard, God, through Ezekiel, has been trying to convince His people that, to put it kind of a funny way, that, that, that judgment for rebellious idolatry is still a thing in God's world. And God will not be mocked. But they won't listen, they won't hear it, they won't believe it. So, one way to put it is that God gets creative. He uses parables and metaphors to to kind of insist from another angle, yes, judgment is still coming. You almost might say, because the direct word has failed, we're now going to try some word pictures. He begins with a parable or metaphor of fire burning up trees. Judgment is coming and it will be like a consuming fire. You heard it a a moment ago. Uh, we, we read that the Southland and the forest of the Negev will burn. Technically speaking, the Negev was a desert south of Jerusalem. In this context, though, when you have Southlands uh, and, uh, and Negev attached together, sometimes that was a, a geographical way, uh, of kind, of a, kind of an idiom, a way of expressing the southern area of what we would call Palestine today, which would have included Judah and Jerusalem. Right? So it's not just limited to the desert area, but it's, it's a broader term, a, a broader way of speaking, the, the, the Southlands, you might say, which would have included Judah and Jerusalem. But that is not actually evident or clear yet, but for understanding the metaphor, we'll see in a few verses later that Jerusalem gets specifically mentioned, and now it's, there's even more clarity to come. There are four things I want you to notice about this parable of the consuming fire. We're going to put them up here on the screen for you. And so that means that uh, the, the text itself will not be on the screen, but I will read it to you, okay? So the first thing I want you to notice is the fire is Yahweh's. It is God's fire. He's the one bringing it, okay? Where do I get that from? It comes from verse 47. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree, and so on. Okay? So the Lord is the one doing this. Next, the fire is unstoppable. The other part of verse 47. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all the trees from south to north shall be scorched by it. Next, the destruction or the damage is total. Okay? You heard that, from south to north. Uh, We read it's going to wipe out every dry tree and every green tree in verse 47. And then finally, 
the destruction or damage is observable, or another word might be public. Okay? The other nations are going to see this. All flesh shall see, verse 48, all flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. All right? So this, this fire is our first metaphor. The fire is Yahweh's. The fire is unstoppable. The destruction is total. The destruction is observable. Four things I just kind of want you to get in your head about what the coming judgment's going to look like. God wants His people to know that He's not afraid to claim that the judgment comes from Him. Sometimes modern people are in a hurry to excuse God from His own proclamations, but the Almighty is not afraid to own the responsibility that comes with, I don't know, being Almighty. He cannot be stopped. He will render judgment completely. Those are the next two. And the nations will know that there is a God in Israel who will not be mocked. Not even by people who claim His name. I would take it a step further. Especially by people who claim His name. How do the people respond? Well, they despise the messenger. Verse 49. Let's go back to the text. Ezekiel expresses his frustration. Ah, Lord God, they're saying of me, is he not a maker of parables? Basically, Lord, they aren't listening to me. They're just mocking me. The people were saying something like, oh boy, here goes Ezekiel again, spinning some fancy metaphor about, well, who knows what. And more on that in a moment. God responds, funnily enough, by giving him a second metaphor, a second parable. This one's much clearer. This one involves a sword in verses 3 through 5. And what do we learn there? In verse 3, we learn that the sword is Yahweh's. That sounds familiar. I am against you, verse 3, and will draw my sword from its sheath. Next, the sword is unstoppable. I have drawn my sword and it shall not be sheathed again. Verse 5. Next, the destruction is total. I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. Verse 3. He repeats it again in verse 4. And then finally, the destruction is public. It's observable. All flesh shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 5. Right? You notice the same things that were spoken of in the parable about the fire are the same things that get spoken of in this new parable of the sword. It's the same point. It's just more clear. How do I know it's clearer? Because in verse 2, we have explicit mention of Jerusalem and Israel. Okay? So the Lord's giving His people more clarity. Not just Southlands and so on. And so that's one way we know that this is clearer. Two... In the last metaphor, people were represented by trees. You remember? The dry tree and the green tree. Now they're simply addressed as the righteous and the unrighteous. This one's a bit clearer. Third, sword language, okay, language of God's sword, would have directed the Old Covenant people in their minds back to the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? There's a promise there. We can go there now. There's a promise in Deuteronomy chapter 32 where God tells them, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. The only thing is, Deuteronomy 32, as you might see, is talking about God's adversaries, enemies, those who hate Him. The point being, God is telling Israel, you've decided to make an enemy of me. Why? 
What have we learned about from Israel in the text and in other prophetic literature? God is opposed to them because they are murdering their children. They are crushing their poor. They are deadening their conscience. And as we've seen in, in, in Ezekiel, you are, as it were, cheating on me with your idols. Your lives prompt the nations around you to ask the question, where is this God of theirs? So the Lord is telling them, I will soon be answering that question for you, blade out, sword ready. What we find in Ezekiel is that actually, interestingly enough, we're given here a wrong way to respond to the announcement of judgment and a right way to respond to it. And so if an announcement of judgment is something that in the course of time Americans will have to hear, I would submit to you that it is then there's a here at least one wrong way to respond to it and at least one right way to respond to it. Not exhaustive, uh, but, uh, but, but at least one wrong way, at least one right way. So let's start with the wrong way. Let's go back to verse 49. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, they're saying of me, is he not a maker of parables? I wonder if you feel how I feel when we open up the book of Ezekiel together. I confess that there are parts of this book that get a bit repetitive, right? The same point is stated over and over again, and then it repeats, and then it is stated again, and then it repeats, and then it repeats. That's a joke, okay. Um, Like they're saying the same thing over. For some of you, (laughs) well, yeah, you're, you're probably good. For some of you, Christian radio prepared you for this kind of endless repetition. But I must confess that for me, it's rather wearying. And so this parable comes along about fires burning up the forest, the dry trees and the green trees alike. And all the people have to say about it is, oh, here goes Ezekiel again. Actually, the ESV translate the Hebrew word is a maker of parables. I think you could translate it prattler, like an annoying little buzzing bug. He's a specialist in blah, blah, blah. Who can understand him? On the one hand, that kind of reminds me of Jesus. Matthew 13, 13. Jesus says, He gives the reason why He speaks in parables. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And I don't wonder if Jesus had this moment from Ezekiel in mind when He said that. But at the same time, I'm reading Ezekiel and thinking, we are in the 20th chapter 21st chapter of the same song and dance we've been in for a while now. How is this lost on the people of Israel? And really, I think if we're honest, when God speaks to sinful rebels about His judgment, apart from a work of the Holy Spirit, where do our hearts go? Or where are they tempted to go? Something like, read a text about judgment against sin, And we know it's our sin. We know it hits close to home. And the temptation is, you know, you know, it's a really complicated text. I mean, who who can really be certain of what it's saying? Who can understand it? Hard messages often get dismissed as confusing because we don't want to hear it. In this case, I don't think it's a stretch to say that people are using Ezekiel's way of talking to them so that they can intentionally misunderstand him and ignore him. His message at various times has been quite clear. 
But this, the fact that he's using a parable allows them to dismiss him, right? Ezekiel, you really need to work on your tone. You're a confusing guy. It's not very winsome. You speak in ways that are hard to understand. You're just a prattler of parables. I think it's a lot more likely they simply refused to hear what he was saying to them. And that is one way men and women respond when they hear things about God or from God that they don't like. Rather than take them and say, I don't like it, but I'm going to take the posture of Job and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. They say, you know, this is really confusing. There are lots of interpretations out there. Who can really know? And there are people who claim the name of Christ who do this frequently with the Word of God. They will adore the Bible as speaking with crystal clarity if the subject is loving your neighbor or obeying the government. But when we get to a judgment text about our sins, suddenly the voice of God begins to stutter and stumble and we can't really be sure what He meant. God says some things about the Christian life, about godliness in general, that can be hard to hear. He says, unrepentant secret sin destroys men and their families. Destroys them. He says that fellowship is is good and necessary for healthy faith. He says that judgment comes to the house of God first. He says that husbands and fathers are called to lead and protect and provide He says, wives and mothers are called to respect and submission. He says that men and women actually tend to be given different kinds of temptations. And they have to be really watchful over those things. We have to care for our families. Otherwise, we're worse than unbelievers, we're told. And so we must know what it means for a man to be a man, for a woman to be a woman. And that's actually something we have to be taught. We aren't born knowing how to bear the glory to which we've been called. And far too often, our response is, man, you know, our God certainly is a spinner of mysteries. Who can really know what He wants from us? When we say we're waiting for some kind of prompting or direction from the Holy Spirit, when the answer is in the Word, it's already been stated. I'm not saying there's no such thing as struggling with a Bible text, by the way. Plenty of texts in the Bible do cause struggle. We're actually talking about that a lot on our, on our, for our Wednesday night class, how to read the Bible. I'm, I'm not saying that sometimes texts in the Bible are not challenging or hard to understand. Certainly, there's no question, uh, not every text in the Bible is, is equally easy to understand on first go. I'm saying... That if we are honest, a lot of times we talk about struggling with a text when what we mean is we are postponing or avoiding obedience. That's the, that's the wrong way to read Scripture. I mean, judgment texts, texts about sin in particular, but, but, but really any, any, any part of Scripture. Okay, so that is, that is a way this, this um, you know, he's just a prattler of parables. Who can understand him? That'd be a wrong way to respond when God speaks. When we are confronted with words of of judgment, judgment against sin and judgment against sinners, then is there a better way to respond? Well, if you look at chapter 21, verse 6. Ezekiel tells a parable. They say we don't get it, so God gets more direct. Parable shifts from fire to sword. 
And the judgment on Jerusalem is more explicit. What is Ezekiel's responsibility after that? It might sound odd. God gives him the sword parable and then tells him to cry about it. Gives him the sword parable and then tells him to cry about it. As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief. Groan before their eyes. Why? Some of you already know why. The overflow of emotional grief has a way of getting people's attention in a way that simple words and commandments and pleas and parables don't. I remember when I was in high school, we, we were living on a military base in, uh, in northern Japan. I was attending an American high school there. And it was like every other American high school. You had to deal with a whole lot of jerks and, and rebels and bullies. I remember one kid in my class, I think if memory serves me, his name was Patrick. Patrick was, uh, I mean, he, he was a bully. He was pretty cruel to a lot of kids, me and some others. I don't mind telling you. Nothing traumatizing, just typical mockery and barbed comments and humiliating jokes and that sort of thing. I remember one day after gym class, we were in the locker room, and some of the guys were discussing some kind of party that was happening that weekend. It was going to be an opportunity for them to drink and to smoke pot, and Patrick mentioned that he would not be going. The reason was he was grounded, you see. His mother had discovered the pot in the drawer in his bedroom. Of course, all his friends were really upset at this news. And then came the, you know, the typical question, well, how, how, how long are you grounded? How long are you in for, right? What's the sentence? Sorry you got caught, man. Just, uh, just tough it out, you know, stick with it. And uh, then we'll get back to partying, yeah? We'll be waiting for you. And he said, no, I don't think so. And they said, man, why? And he looked up and he said, have you ever had to watch your mother cry? Have you ever had to wonder if your mom hates who you are? And that entire locker room went silent. We all know that when a person is broken by something, their grief spills out. And it has a way of sobering us to the seriousness of a thing. There's something about witnessing a person's grief that makes you realize how deeply they're being affected. And in some cases causes you to wonder if you ought to be deeply affected too, right? I mean, depends on the situation, but... There is, of course, also a risk here, to use the old metaphor, a ditch on the other side, where crying and emotional overflow can become a tool for manipulation, precisely because an emotional outburst carries weight. And some people realize that, And learn to swing that weight around really effectively and sometimes really frequently. It's why a toddler throws a tantrum. Right? Because high-intensity emotional outburst is a really good way to gain control of a situation. And it's why we advise parents, don't be intimidated by a tantrum. Because it's a manipulative ploy for control. And as we grow up, the temptation to use emotional outburst in order to manipulate can still continue. This is a temptation that tends to be, I think, more common to women, though I think we're also starting to see it in a lot of men today, 
in my generation, which is, by the way, not good. What we can learn from Ezekiel is not simply, you know, it's okay to cry. Okay? Now, by itself, that's, that's fair enough. I want to say it's not simply that because, in part, we live in a culture that is, that is at the moment, terrified of questioning or correcting intense emotional reactions. So our tendency is just to endorse emotional expression, to, to, to justify and protect almost all emotional outbursts, outbursts as appropriate so long as they come from, whatever, the right person, which, which just permits a lot of emotional tyranny. So it's not a blanket endorsement here of emotional outburst, especially when I think a lot of times we are... Our, our cultural moment needs a corrective in the other direction. But what Ezekiel does teach us here is that groaning and crying is precisely the appropriate reaction to have when something confronts you that warrants no other reaction. In these cases, the fact that your grief gets the attention of your family, friends, neighbors, whatever, is not manipulative. Ezekiel was instructed to groan precisely because (laughs) nothing else was working. Getting the attention of God's people. This is what would force them to stop and ask in verse 7. And when they say to you, why do you groan? So it sets up the opportunity for Ezekiel to fill them in on what's wrong. Emotional response that is proportionate to the offense or tragedy or loss or the horror of a thing is good and appropriate and right. There is a time to shed tears, dear saints, over your own sins. There is a time to shed tears for the abominations in your own land. There is a time to groan over the apostasy of the present generation and over our failure to disciple them well in many cases. There is a time to follow in the footsteps of your Savior Jesus and pause to weep over the wickedness and unbelief in your own city. And like Ezekiel, there is a time to groan and weep over the likelihood of coming judgment, which when it comes will be God's doing. Remember the list of four things. It'll be God's doing. It'll be unstoppable. It'll be total. It'll be observable. Though a remnant will be spared. I know our text this morning says both righteous and wicked will be cut off. I think you have to read that in the context of the earlier chapter 18 where God says He will protect His own and there will be a remnant, but that doesn't mean that that remnant is going to be spared the pain of loss and exile. So what do we do then? First, we keep in mind that in a sense, the one thing we've got going for us is time. We have plenty of time till we die and we serve the Lord of heaven and earth and all of time. There is always time to pray. There is always time to repent. There is always time to keep believing God for the salvation of the lost, for the reclaiming of prodigals, and for the salvation of our land. But second, in a season of coming judgment, the basic, most fundamental call to every Christian is Get your household in order. To repent of your own sins. Start there. And maybe a time to shed tears over them. But certainly to repent of them. To ask for forgiveness from those you wronged. Whether it be your wife or your husband or your children or your parents. Or your church or your close friends. 
The righteousness that transforms societies and nations is always a matter of the river banks of Zion overflowing to bless and baptize the nations. The spread of the gospel in our city will not be a matter of our doctrinal precision, important as that is. It will be a matter of repentance and joy and gladness and worship happening in our own homes and overflowing the borders of our backyard property lines and spilling over into our neighborhoods. Somebody better say amen to that. I worked really hard on that line, guys. It's not going to get better than that. For we preach a God who forgives sin. Make sure you all are awake. We preach a God man on a cross who is, by the way, not afraid to weep and groan and bleed and die for His people that they might be called sons of God. This also, by the way, robs us of our fear. We sang about it a moment ago. Do not fear, do not fear, for I am the Lord. We are not afraid of our sins, to put it one way. We're not afraid of the sins of our neighbors because we know the one who, a weird way to put it, but we know the one who can eat sin and digest it himself and die and come back to life. To, to consume, as it were, to put all of your sin on him, to go to the grave and to leave your sin there and rise again. We know the one who can take our sin into himself, kill it, and raise us to new life. Because the God of justice has already spoken our sentence. That day, some 2,000 years ago on the cross, God poured out his wrath and judgment for sin on his own beloved son. On the cross. Next one, please. And what do we know about the cross? That cross was Yahweh's doing. It was His Father's will. That cross was unstoppable. Jesus said in the garden, right, of Gethsemane, if there be another way, yet not what I will, but what you will. This way was unstoppable. It had to happen, appointed before all time. The judgment on the Son was total. Covering all of the sins of His people. And that judgment was observable, public, outside the camp in view of all the Romans and Jews and Greeks that were gathered together. That's why we preach your sins are forgiven. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Press on to know the Lord. Turn from your sin and apathy. Turn from your lust and laziness. Turn from your cowardice and covetousness. And come to Jesus Christ, who has taken all of God's judgment against you, and now sends His Holy Spirit to transform you, to call you out of your whining and emotional manipulation, out of your coldness and callousness, into the new world that He is making. Now, it is true that God will still deal with the sins of a nation that spurns His goodness. There may indeed be days ahead that turn the knees of mockers into water. That's from later on in that text. But we need rescue in these things. In a day when our fellow citizens commit murder and ask, where is your God? When our neighbors can celebrate perversion and brokenness while asking, where is your God? 
Hatred and bitterness take root and grow in households, and abusers and manipulators ask, where is your God? If Ezekiel tells us anything, it is that those who demand an audience for the Almighty will get one. And and terrible is the day when the Lord Almighty unsheathes His sword and says, here I am, you will never ask that question again. What hope do we have in such times? Dear saints, the hope of our land begins with the reformation of the church, a return to biblical worship, a return to meaningful fellowship, a return to sanctified households, a return to aggressive evangelism, and at times, a return to weeping and groaning over sin and over judgment. But our God is on the move, and He is putting all of His enemies under His feet. And on the last day, every knee, believing or cursing, will bow. Until then, it is given to us to watch, to wait, and to work. For the gates of hell will not, will not prevent and will not prevail against the kingdom march of our God. This is our firm hope and commitment. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Our Father, we pray for mercy on our land. We pray for mercy on our homes and our families. We pray for mercy on our church. We pray that you would sanctify us, that you would expose sin, first of all, our own sin to us. There's a reason why we come in here every Sunday and and early on begin confessing sin. Lord, put us, as it were, into that habit Monday through Saturday privately and publicly before friends and family members, understanding our need for repentance, our need for forgiveness. Lord, I pray, um, I, I thank you for a congregation that so deeply desires and earnestly loves being together. I pray that you would exponentially grow that delight, that our fellowship would be substantive and meaningful not shallow in passing. And that you, Lord, would sanctify and glorify your name. In a day to come soon, may it be said, there is a God in Alexandria, ruling and reigning and redeeming his own, calling them home. Help us, Lord, to believe. Give us faith as we watch and wait and work. In Jesus' name, amen.